Hello and welcome to Dynasty As They Want to Be, a podcast where we drill into every episode of the iconic 1980s television series, Dynasty. I'm your host, Derek J. Lang, and with me is my co-host, Kyler K. Javari. Aloha. Aloha. So greetings from the islands because you've made us a delicious Mai Tai to uh, to sip on well, while we talk know, about this week's episode. Well, it seems that summer runs especially late these years and so why yeah, not have it's a mai tai in october mm, well let's not talk about that let's talk about mai tais instead <laughs> so yeah you know this is a drink that i think is my number one favorite umbrella drink ever i've purposely omitted the umbrellas because i can't find them they're missing in the bar i, I know i can have show to get to the bottom of that one after the podcast i'll show yeah, you where they i are. bet you will anyway i think there's like this big big misconception that mai tais are like hawaiian pineapple juice bullshit drinks but if you make it the real way, the original way, the way most old cocktail books from pre-1982 would tell you, it's just lime juice, light and dark rum, um, and the magic ingredient is orgeat, which is like this funky French-sounding, you know, infused sugary almond rose petal thing. I don't know. I, nobody really knows what orgeat is, but that is like the secret ingredient to a proper Mai Tai. Um, and I guarantee your pineapple juice bullshit drink from, uh, you know, Grand Lux Cafe is is not a real Mai Tai because it doesn't have orgeat. Yeah, well, it's delicious. And I was just really craving it because um, we took a trip back in time this weekend. So we're in Palm Springs right now uh, celebrating Modernism Week Fall Preview. It's where all the architecture and style and design of mid-century modernism is celebrated because um if you don't know out there listening palm springs has the highest concentration of mid-century modern architecture so um so yeah we've been going around to some of the modernism events and this afternoon i think was the pinnacle it was uh it's called the cul-de-sac experience so in the canyon vista estates canyon vista neighborhood they uh, close off a cul-de-sac and they had go-go dancers and a ice cream truck and you can go in and look at everybody's house and they had a tour and well i just, just really i just really time. liked how they were all in on the deal you know it's like you had the cars the clothes obviously the the houses the landscaping yeah it was immaculate. Uh, bathing beauties at the pool. I mean, it was, you know, everything was there for, it was just a time capsule moment. Yeah. Yeah. It basically was like going to, to Disneyland, although it was like better than Disneyland because there was no children there. <laughs> well, not after you get your, your Fallon Chardonnay abortion. But yeah, what was your favorite part of, um, of Modernism Week? Obviously, I love the cars, but that's my thing. There was there was a lot of like well restored vehicles. You know, you had had your Studebaker Avanti, you had your Lincoln Continental, you know, you had your your Dodge something or other, your AMC Javelin, you know, your '67 Mustang Fastback, of course. I mean, you know, they were they were doing it all. It was the the high, the low. I think there was a Cadillac Eldorado convertible. 
Um, lots of period-appropriate colors. Everything well restored. My favorite was that car um, that was like very. It was like being used as an airport shuttle car for, but to go to the TWA oh, right. terminal. Oh right, the uh, the station wagon, which I think was also another AMC vehicle. I don't remember now, but yeah, it was it was just your very sort of like pedestrian. Yeah, because usually utility you think of vehicle like of that the time. muscle cars or whatever. Yeah. But it was fun that they had you know something that a family would actually be driving out to Palm Springs for a weekend getaway. I like the sort of like retroactive, like go, go boy. Like that's, that's not a thing from back then. Like they wouldn't have had, well, not a young, attractive males dancing in platform shoes, like in 1967. I'm may not have sure been a bit much, that. but they're definitely in go, go dancing, like in old movies and stuff. There's, boys that are go-going yeah what i would really love to see my fantasy that i was thinking about what if they did this same sort of production at the uh, tavoli mansion or however you say it where dynasty was filmed and people were dressing Faloli like, house Faloli, yeah uh people were dressed in you know 80s appropriate garb i don't think it's like gonna happen did you say bought that damn place Oh, well, the one in Pasadena, the Avengers directors bought, but the one in um, upstate California is uh, part of a a state trust or something, so nobody actually lives there. But the one in Pasadena that they use for like the close-up exteriors where the actors well, are... Well, exterior shots don't count. We want the, the Filoli house. That's what it's all about. Right. The one where you see in the helicopter flying over. Right. And where the original... like the foyer and dining room and staircase right. are the all reproduced with love. But yeah, wouldn't it be fun if somebody did like a, a, a themed event? Like, I don't know, instead of go-go boys, they would just have like bitchy butlers and <laughs> instead of like, you mean malicious major domos. Oh, oh, are you trying to rebrand Joseph? Well, I've, I've got some thoughts about him for this episode actually, but all that'll, right. That'll well, come in a minute. Yeah, well, why wait, honey? Let's uh, let's take a break and we'll get into this week's episode. Welcome back. Well, I want to start off out the gate with the occult. So before we leave Rome and come back to uh, to Denver, Alexis Carrington is seeking the services of a of a psychic of a. A woman who has no, no. glimpses into the let's, future. Let's be careful about this term. Psychic. A mystic. Sure. That's that's an ecumenical way to refer to this. I don't know. I mean, she's she's consulting a, a glowing orb that might be a crystal ball, but that shit ain't LED. That's for sure. I'm pretty sure it was a lamp. Like world's lamest crystal ball prop ever, but okay. Uh, but I will give props for the art department using this like it's a Visconti Sforza tarot deck. I mean, this is like one of the original antique Italian traditional playing card, you know, decks from I believe the 15th century. I don't know. I could be off by a hundred years plus or minus. But anyway, uh, she's kind of like trying too hard to chew the scenery. Well, she's terrible, but her read is pretty good. I'll say uh, she's she's delivering the six of cups and the two of cups and saying like you're reaching back to the past for somebody you used to love and that's like totally this thing with Blake I mean whoever's doing the writing here like still has a couple of brain cells because this is like pretty spot on 
tarot architecture here. I mean, I, I can't really disagree with anything this crazy woman is reading for Alexis. Well, I'm glad you appreciated the reading because I did not love this woman's performance. No, her acting is dreadful. It and was she's, she's doing this like top. this classic like cold read stuff where it's like, well, you tell me what do you think this means? It's like, well, no, you're you're the person supposed to be reading the cards. Oh, you know? I don't have a problem with the script. I have a problem with the actress just screaming out of nowhere. Tell me some more about this powerful man who is very attractive to me and who may or may not be Blake. He's going to ask you to marry him. Really? Yes. <laughs> and will I? Yes. Only. Only what? He will expire! If this well, woman was screaming at me like that, I, I would that ask for a refund and leave immediately. She's very excited that she doesn't have to do a paper towel commercial. She's like, this is it. I'm on Dynasty and this show's blowing up and like she's reaching for the golden ring. I want to know what was going through Joan Collins's head in that moment that this actress was giving this uneven, weird performance as Hadriana. I don't know mystic. about Joan, but... Certainly, Alexis. Like, I love that Alexis traffics in tarot. Like, that just seems like so yeah on character. Yeah, for it's her, definitely you know? on brand as a villainess that she you know consults the occult. And I like the fact that she gets uh, news that is probably actually foreshadowing. I mean, because I know some things, I think I know what they're sort of hinting at. And it's kind of fun to do that because, hey, this is all mapped out. Like, she's not a real psychic. Well, this so is she, how, like, she if, can predict if the future. If you take the woo-woo out of tarot and just look at it as, like, ink and paper, this is an old classic trick. Like, writers who get bored, especially for soap opera writing, this is a good technique. Like, just pull some tarot cards and there's your next plot. Kind of think literally that's what happened here. <laughs> well, hell, there was that soap passions that you were into where like there were psychics in every episode and witches. Why are you and... saying that I was into it? Like at least 238,000 other people in the country were into uh, into passions. Uh, I'm going to see need to see the numbers on that one. I, I think that's a bit high. I thought you were going to say 282 people. Like Then that would have been a little more accurate. I think you're greatly underestimating the dramatic prowess of the production and writing of passions. Okay, honey. You are my passion for life. Ah. Breathe in, breathe out. Uh, All right. Well, I need to breathe in because we need to talk about Stephen and no, Sammy. No, no. Joe. we're not. We're not done with with Alexis's, uh, you know, riveting tarot reading. No, I think we're good. <laughs> no, we're not because, like, I think the best thing about it is Adriana like pulls these uh, King of Swords, which could be Blake or could be Cecil Colby, and I think Alexis is not even thinking about Cecil Colby right now. Uh, she just is thinking about Blake because that's what, you know, that's the order of the day right now. Then, you know, she pulls the death card, which is like somebody's going to die. But then she pulls like the lover's card, like somebody's going to propose to you. So it's all about like, is Blake going to go back in the past and, and propose to Alexis and then die? Because the whole thing with Alexis is like she wants to get that Carrington inheritance. She wants that empire. 
that's really what she's after here. Like she's totally selfish. And at this point, if you haven't figured out that like it's all a put on, she's going to reveal that a little bit later in the kitchen with Blake at the end of the this episode. But the other thing that I like. Yeah, no, her goal is to get Crystal out of the picture. That's goal number one. The other thing I like about this tarot reading is uh, Crystal is apparently the queen of cups, which totally makes sense because all Crystal does is go take naps, feel sad, gonna gonna cry and faint about everything. So and and she's a blonde woman, as Alexis even calls out. So like this is like all somebody was like really like feeling the tarot vibes when they wrote this because this is not like your typical you know circus vaudeville routine version of tarot. Like something something's like you know a little bit dialed in there and like the cards they're they're putting on screen. So the other thing that's in the cards, uh, and by cards I mean the fucking episode title, is that Stephen and Sammy Joe marry. I hate the fact that they would reveal that plot because I didn't really see that coming. I think I kind of knew in the back of my head that they got married at some point, but I didn't need them to like... You haven't watched too many soap operas, have you? Bang me over the head with it, but I have a lot to say about these two. I mean, I could probably go on and on. The main thing that I would like to discuss is Heather Locklear's acting ability. Now, I watched Melrose Place growing up. I love Melrose Place. Wait, you're watching her acting? I love Heather Locklear on Melrose Place. She elevated that show. Watching this, I feel like this young Heather Locklear is like de-elevating the show. Like her acting is so stilted. And maybe it's because she's being like foisted upon this... Stephen Carrington character that has a lot of troubles. Oh, is clearly, he gay? Is he straight? At least, well, I shouldn't say clearly, but at least on film, these two do not have any chemistry. Mm-mm. But I don't feel like she has chemistry with her roller skates. I feel like her performance is as flat as those tarot cards. It's like clear that Stephen and Sammy Joe are in a doomed relationship and of course they're going to get married which makes it even more doomed and steven is like full sign on for the the gay conversion therapy like he's a solidified pseudo heterosexual at this point but i was getting the vibe from him that he didn't really care what his father thought so who is he doing this for it's not himself definitely it didn't seem to be for his father. His sister doesn't really give a fuck. So, like, society? Is he just trying to, like, pass? I, I don't think... I don't know. I, I don't think the writers thought about that much either. I, I think this is just a... They had a, a fun flash in the pan with a gay character for a bit. And now it's, like, time to reel that in because it's, like, a little... A little too on the edge, so maybe it's just as simple as like wooden writing. The only way that I can kind of wrap my head around it is that Steven really is into like race car driving and this hobby that he's brought or that um, he Sammy is, Joe like, has like brought he says, into like, his I life. I want to race, right? Like that's that's like how you know the gay conversion sticks, and it's like, and he even tells 
uh, Sammy Joe, like, and I want you to be not just my pit girl, but my coach. Right. Which is like, wait, do you want her to be your sexual surrogate? Like, this is like a little bit awkward. It's weird. It's like, it's not a little bit awkward. It's the most awkward thing I think depicted on this show since maybe Lindsay Blaze. But right before he says this like thing about like, oh, you know, I'm like thinking about strange and beautiful places and far away from here and. So it's like he's still got this like English major, right? Well, sort that's, of like okay. Soul so that's my that's all. my point. Before you cut me off, is that I think that the only way that I can understand this is that Sammy Joe is the personification of this new hobby that he's really into, i.e., race car driving and automotive sports. Because yeah, it can lead to traveling the world and going to Le Mans and you know Daytona Beach or whatever. And so he's really into that. So therefore he's into her, even though he's gay or bisexual and she's also boring as a person. So maybe that's what it is. Again, I know there's all this behind the scenes stuff that they're trying to make his character straight, but I'm just trying to wrap my head around what's on the screen. And that's that's all I got. But I just, I really... I'm really recoiling every time Heather Locklear appears on the screen. And I can't justify that in my head because I loved her on Melrose Place and I love her in all those Hallmark movies. And she's terrible here. I guess she really did kind of come into her own later in life. Yeah, maybe this show was just like a teething ring for her, you know. It also makes me anxious because I know she's on the show for several years. So it's like, oh God, I hope she gets better. I hope I don't have to do well, with this. Well, this is... Like just my main takeaway from this character is I resent her, you know, being on the show. So like you're starting to see like where that comes from. Great. I I think the other thing that's interesting, you know, because again, he says like this whole like I want to race and like I want to be like you and your friends and, you know, they elope. Right, in the saddest ceremony ever depicted on the show. Like it's like a like what a a, a three two split level ranch home that's been converted into a chapel o love. I mean, like what is this place even? Who knows? Who cares? Yeah, and there's a sign outside that says Justice of the Peace. Was that like a real thing back then? I like, don't. I think that was a real thing in like a a rural town in Oklahoma, in 1954 or something. Like the, even even at this point when this show is being made, it's a little bit kind of on the nose i don't know but anyway so but did you notice like he's wearing the tweed jacket with the black shoulder patch Mm -hmm. which as far as i'm aware is still a reference to mourning for ted denard being dead at the murder trial like only about eight or nine episodes ago i know why would you wear the same blazer that you wore to the murder trial of your father killing your gay lover because i guess getting married washes away all the sins of the gay lifestyle that he lived before i don't know it's 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 very strange and unsettling i would use that word problematic but it's actually not it's it's just unsettling yeah, super unsettling. The other thing that's a little bit gay in in this episode, I mean, if we didn't already know, it's pretty clear at this point, and I think we kind of already uncovered this before, but Joseph has like a serious gay crush on Blake. Like, don't you think? That's like a subtext that's very easy to pick up on. He's not only obsessed with like Alexis Carrington's goings on with his little tabloid, you know, news clipping shrine that he has to her yeah but then like 
He's also like, as soon as Blake lands on the, you know, private jet from the Mideast or Rome or wherever he's coming back from, it's like he wants to check in on Blake. Like, how are you doing? How are you well, feeling? Well, you know what? How Actually, that bothered me in this episode because a lot of people wanted to check in on Blake. Mm-hmm. Like, has nobody ever flown to Rome before? Like, the pilot was asking how the trip was. Andy Laird was asking about the trip. Alexis, who was there, was asking how his flight back was. Uh, Crystal didn't give a fuck because she's pissed, but we'll get to that in a second. But I was like, this guy's a tycoon. Does he not travel well, all the time? This is like, I think this has never happened before. Sets you up a little bit to understand how sexual attraction, at least in the storylines here, is sort of a, a sort of a, a portal for how somebody like Blake Harrington can employ all of these people and they're all dependent upon him. I don't know. But like, but the thing with Joseph is like, he's, he's also like, of course, a subscriber to reveal, you know, our favorite, um, regional tabloid publication. And (laughs) he's, I think he's like totally jealous of Alexis and Blake's relationship. And that's why he brings it up with Blake. I, I think that, um, Joseph wishes he were in Alexis's position in that one. Well, I think it's interesting that this story has spread beyond just reveal. It got picked up in the society pages of the newspaper. And then Andy Laird even mentions that the wire services picked it up. So Alexis's plan worked tenfold. This is hot. It went everywhere. And of course, Crystal saw it. And that's what Crystal. we call good PR. <laughs> Or bad PR, I guess, if you're Crystal. The episode started while she's still making out with Nick Toscani. And, ugh, gross. Like, I'm, I want to spit up my Mai Tai. Their kiss was like... It wasn't even like a real kiss. It, it seemed like third graders, like, experimenting with their mouths. Like, there was no connection between the two of them. I'm so glad that they weren't experimenting with anything else. Yeah, I'm glad they kept their clothes on. And Crystal kind of felt the same way because as soon as their embrace ended, she went and tried to call a cab in GTFO. And Nick Toscani, in a weird kind of turn of events, was like, you don't like me. You didn't feel hot for me when you first saw me. And she's like, yeah, no, I'm just kind of confused and weirded out right now and I want to go home. Wait, wasn't this like the thing where she's like, oh, if, if the, we could do this all over again, to be having your baby? No, that's Fallon. I'm talking about Crystal. Oh, but I thought the thing with Crystal was different. I thought like he was like totally into Crystal and she was that's the one. That's what I just said. Are you him. listening to me? <laughs> but anyway, it seems like that relationship isn't going to go anywhere, which is good because I, I need less Dr. Toscani in my life and I certainly don't need him making out with crystal so the only thing i'll say about crystal and blake and whatever the fuck problem they're having is like this is what blake gets for lying to protect himself about is alexis there in the background when she's on the phone with him in the prior episode because now here he is back at you know the ranch and crystal's seen the results aka hot story in the reveal front page he tried to do damage control before the fact and did he 
I think he was because if he had told her that Alexis was there at the villa in Rome while he was on the phone, it would have been probably just as much of an issue. Oh, yeah. No, I see what you're Except saying. Except now it's all like on the front page of Reveal Tabloid at your supermarket. Oh, it's everywhere. You know? The story's gone viral. But my bananas and my things. issue is with um, Blake. After he sees the reveal, his immediate instinct isn't to go to Crystal. He like does all of this stuff, meets up with the gangster and, you know, threatens him. Well, I think the gangster meets up with him. but Right. And then Andy, he goes over to Andy Laird and talks to him. So he doesn't see Crystal till like six, seven o'clock at night and just kind of tries to brush it off. And it's like, well, that ain't going to work. Oh, so you're on a thing where like he and Chris, he's not really like doing the right things by Crystal. He's not doing damage control once he sees reveal and sees that the story has gone viral. So... What an asshole. I mean, I already know that, but this is just another instance of well, but Blake being a really dick. he's not like an asshole the way he was in season one. Like, he's certainly, you know, thought out a bit, I guess you could say. Well, and TBH, it's not his fault. I mean, he should have just told Crystal, oh, Alexis set this deal up. Well, the and reason it's honest. not his fault is because Alexis is, like, clearly in control of all of this. And this is why we love her character. She showed up and... Totally taken taken over the game, and as good a player as Blake is, Alexis is just a little bit better, and she's about to get all of her revenge because Crystal's going to see all them headlines and reveal and Washington Post or wherever the hell she gets her news, and she's going to go to the the um the the I'm leaving phone booth, which is outside of Denver, where where she always goes before she's going to leave town and go back to Dayton or wherever the hell she runs off to when she's tired of Blake. Yeah. I'm, (laughs) I thought that whole end sequence was really laughable. I know that the writers and producers were trying to build the drama because it starts storming in Denver and Crystal puts on her fur coat and gets in her Rolls Royce and starts just down the the street. Like she's Cruella fucking What a way to say that I'm leaving you, but like, oh, but by the way, I'll take the fur and the rolls that you gave me. Like, but I'm by, I'm like, I'm leaving. Bye. You know, like, (laughs) well, and then like, what, what does she really do? Then she just drives to a phone booth and calls them like down the road. So she didn't even really leave. Like, what a pussy. Well, again, this is like she cannot act according what her intentions are. Like she has zero conviction and she gets to like half a mile outside of town and has to pull over and call Blake and second guess her own decision to leave. Well, and here's the thing. Which I, makes for nice like soap opera drama, by the way. But it's, does it? it's a little bit ridiculous when you kind of like dissect it for a second. Yeah, when you dissect it, I don't give a fuck because they both stepped out on each other. He was putting suntan lotion all over his ex-wife and not being honest with Crystal and giving her a little smooch or she smooched him or whatever. And then Crystal's in the arms of, you know, Dr. Well, Tortellini. Blake's so, a total derp in It's a this. wash. He's a derp. He gets played on the oil thing with, with Rashida Med. Um, although he does end up turning that negotiation around. Yeah, I was going to say out. he got the oil back. Finally, but, like, we're in an instance where Denver Carrington isn't about to go under like as far as he was concerned he wants to buy the football team back he's got his oil back like i think he's making moves no he's not no he's not making moves because uh alexis has totally played him 
Because she's like, oh, here's your oil tankers. But meanwhile, I'm about to wreck your marriage. Uh, I just I just love Alexis Carrington as ultimate home wrecker. You know, here it is playing out. And then she like sneaks into the kitchen after she knows that Crystal's fleed the scene or fled the scene. Fled. Oh, my God. Anyway, and she's even like made the point to like change her outfit as she does. You know, it's like, you know, you can never wear too many outfits in one day. And and she's playing on like Blake's whole like awareness of the situation. And then she goes like double down on it. She's kind of doing the fortune teller thing where she's like, I would never do this. And I would never sacrifice my authenticity and my credibility. And it's like, but wait a minute, lady, you like clearly set him up and he knows that you set him up. And she's like doubling down, like protesting too much, you know. And it's like I just, I just love how she's she's digging in on that. And yeah, but you know what? I don't think Blake is necessarily buying everything she's saying at face value. I think value. he is because again, he's nah. a derp. No, he's a derp here. But you don't want to know why? Because he tells her to answer the damn phone. He knows that like, nothing good can. He come. doesn't know how to answer a he phone. He does not People know do that, that anything for good him. can come from Alexis Carrington answering his own damn house line. Well, look, if he knew how to answer a phone, then maybe he would have. But he's too busy making a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and a cup of coffee or whatever. Oh, answer that, will you please? Hello? 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 No answer. Well, at least it wasn't one of those heavy breathers. Yeah, well, I just I just love that of course she answers the phone and Crystal's on the other end dialing for dollars and it's like she hears the other woman on the other other side, you know, and so that sort of seals the deal for Crystal that yeah, I'm making the right decision by leaving Blake. Pretty corny stuff. And like honestly, Dumb. the credits roll and it's like gotta be one of the like campiest things that's happened on this show so far. I, I I think like so far this show's done a lot of things that could be con, you know classified as campy, but this is like this whole thing like I could not quit shrieking with laughter. It was like a, a one minute solid of how ridiculous is this, and in an enjoyable way. Like I'm not annoyed at any of this. I just think it's totally funny and, and ridiculous. Yeah, I'm not emotionally involved, but visually I do love well, a I woman in a phone booth with a fur coat on in the rain. I mean. That's a great visual. It's it's like something Roy Lichtenstein, you know, would have, <laughs> would have made a, a painting out of. Yeah, it's it's totally what we're what we're feeling here, and I think that this is feeding into the the thing that we all sort of think about Dynasty, and this is it. This is this moment, like right here, where you're seeing it. Oh, I don't think about Dynasty inside of phone booths. I mean, I think about Bill and Ted in a phone booth. I don't know. So all that aside, it's. Finally, after episodes and episodes of talking about this abortion, it's finally the day has come. I feel like we've been waiting months. I feel like the baby should have already come by now. Like, is it even possible for her to have an abortion? Because we've been talking about it for so damn long. And Jeff has reached the boiling point. Now he's just going to I Watch think she's been over working her. on a soft abortion this whole time. Like it's just all about drinking the bourbons and waters and Chardonnay at three a.m. 
Jen Martini's in the drawing room. She's clearly going to have some fetal alcohol syndrome if she does not abort this poor child. Well, I mean, if we want to just give it away, she doesn't abort it, even though Jeff runs around Denver freaking out over the abortion. And now he's... Now he's got his briefs in a twist because of um, this marriage deal that he's kind of known about. But for some reason, this episode is where it all comes to a head and he confronts both Cecil and Blake about the fact that they married uh, Fallon off to him. I just like he says that line to her while they're in the bedroom and, you know, in the wee hours of the morning, like about... You can't kill my baby. What's the matter with you? Let go of me. I couldn't ask him about your story, whether it was true or not. Get your hands off of me. What story? How he bought you for me. A wedding gift for Blake. Two Blake. Nine million dollars to Blake if you married me. (sighs) I'm going to go through that mud again. Oh, you thrive on mud. You wallow in it like a sow. You're the mud born. So again, like he's the woman in this relationship. Like he's like, he's got zero balls and no agency. And I'm I'm so done with Jeff at this point. He's just like whiny and obnoxious. Yeah. And I like that Fallon is determined to make this happen. As soon as Jeff like falls asleep, she picks up her big suitcase and drives down to the, uh, the abortion clinic, which I thought for a second, the sign literally did say abortion clinic. Cause you just see in the frame, it says, O N and then clinic. And I was like, does it, did they literally make a sign that says abortion clinic? <laughs> like here's your neighborhood abortion clinic. No, yeah. But it's the Blandon <laughs> clinic. And <laughs> Fallon wants to uh, get it done as soon as possible. She literally goes before they open, even though her abortion is set for 1 PM. And I like that. Oh, yeah, She does the old like flash of 20 to get a better table in the restaurant. Well, I don't know if it was the 20 or what. And it wasn't even flashing it. It was like crumpled up money. And the reception like up crumpled, crumpled up money at a stripper. Like that's just rude. Like at least folded into a nice little rectangle. Well, I know? just love like offering money to get your abortion done earlier. It's like so ridiculous. Thank God it's fiction. Cause otherwise it'd be just cringy. Oh, well it's still kind of cringy. This whole abortion thing is sort of cringy especially at the end she doesn't end up going through with it Blake comes to uh, confront her and barges into the abortion clinic peeping his head in and there's got to be some medical malpractices filed in Denver after what happened here. Uh, because don't remember. Don't like, do you not remember the nurse at the desk says like to the other patient, like, Oh, don't worry about your social security number. We'll figure that out later. Yeah. That's what I was just about to talk about that. And then the fact that Blake just goes willy nilly through there and the, the receptionist also like calls out her name and just tells anybody who knows her name coming up. There's like no confidentiality whatsoever at the Blandon Clinic. So if you have to have any procedures done, I recommend not going there. I just like that they call it the abortion desk. <laughs> like there's a whole desk just for abortion. I don't even want to like consider the implications. It's just, uh, all right. Yeah, it's so soapy. How do you feel that Fallon didn't actually go through with it? Oh, I, th- I think, again, all these characters are mostly acting in ultimate uh, selfishness. She's she's like, oh, I'm going to give you a grandchild, you know. And it's like, oh, well, but wait, that's what your whole reason for getting pregnant was to begin with was because of the Crystal situation. And then when Crystal was going to have 
not have a baby, I should say. Now it's like you don't have to do it anymore. But like that's like clearly like her motivation. Yeah, it's another step back for Fallon. And the other step back is as soon as this ends, they go back to the Carrington mansion and she's laying in bed with like a bow in her head and she's wearing what looks like her christening outfit. It's weird. I guess she's going to have a baby unless her mom points a gun up in the air while she's on a horse, but they probably aren't going to be riding They've horses They've exhausted that now. trope at this point. Yeah. God, no more miscarriages, please. Yeah. Now that we've gotten abortion and miscarriage out of the way, we've gotten gay conversion. We've gotten elopement twice now. I, I don't know. I feel like we've covered all of the mini bases and soap opera writing. Like, what are they going to do at this point? Oh, I could list more, but I'm not going to do that. Well, Kyler, what was your look of the week? Uh, for me, it was definitely Claudia at the freaking St. Dennis Club. Oh my God, two weeks in a row you're choosing Claudia? I I think like the the costume department is like secretly setting us up for why we're going to keep loving Claudia because... Again, character is quite a bit different. And I'm glad that she's out of her funk that she's been in in the beginning of mm-hmm. the season. It is you know? nice it is nice to see her in a But she's in not a like fully headspace. evolved yet. Like, you know, she's becoming this like eighties, you know, middle class working woman now. And so I'm loving that journey. And we're just kind of seeing still like the first act of it. But I'm totally digging this like crazy fu fuchsia blousey dress thing that she's wearing and it's accessorized with like the gold coins belt and the artisan necklace beading it's it's all just sort of like another like whatever daytime look but i think maybe the color choice is really what sets it off and then her hair is again it's it's like here we go with claudia's overprocessed you know, super eighties do, um, versus what she was in the first season. And I just think it's like, I don't just, I'm like seeing this woman who's like got nothing else to live for right now. And she's making her own way. And and I dig this outfit. And, and also she kind of rejects like Cecil's offer for like a, a a cheap on the fly apartment, you know, like she's like, no, I I can do this myself. I don't need that. Yeah. It is nice to see a counterpoint to Alexis who is very independent, fierce woman, but you know, her motives are pretty nasty. Whereas with Claudia Blaisdell, she kind of just wants her kids and wants to live a healthy, normal life or as normal as normal can be for her. And she's going about it in like, a nice moral way, but still looking fabulous as fuck. I I agree with you. I think the glam squad on the production team must really love Pamela Bellwood. I think I said it last week because she's never looked better. Her hair is great. Got a nice bounce to it. Clearly they set it up for her. Her makeup is nice. I just, yeah, I agree. She looks great, but I, I can't choose her as my look of the week. I just think it's nice because it has like the wide cut neck, but then like the necklace kind of balances it out. I, I don't know. There's something about the way it's put together and accessorized. But again, it's not the most fabulous thing ever, but I know this episode is a little bit low key on, on the, you know, the, the costumes. So... I don't know. For me, my look of the week was uh, Lexus back in her artist studio after her trip to Italy. She's got on this nice, shiny, 
red poofy blouse with big sleeves and then it's got one of them big bows on it is that a pussy bow what do you call that that's not a pussy it's bow a, it's a it's a kitty cat bow oh yeah, i don't know <laughs> yeah pussy bow sure no i don't think that's what it is I, I think the bow is like part of the blouse but then it's got like a ruffle detail around the collar but that was like a very common like detail at that that was like trendy we should even say yeah was, well like, she is the blouse with the wearing pink shoulder and the high collar and the bow. Yeah, and it was all the same material. Yeah, yeah, we've seen her with some poofy shoulders, and you know, this was like an instant number. Like it was all one article of of clothing, and you would just like button it up in the back, like you know, very easy dressing. Well, you got to tie that bow though, too. I don't think you did. I think it was pre-tied. I mean, you could untie it, I suppose. I don't know. I don't. I, I wasn't a woman in 1981. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I don't need to know how to get in or out of it. I just know that she looked fabulous with it. And it was a real power move because she was meeting with the um, the private detective that she'd hired to look into Crystal's past. And then she brought Andy Laird in and served him a glass of wine. And I don't know. I just love seeing Alexis in red when she's in power. It's just passionate and fiery and i just liked how this outfit blended in with the brick at the garage later when she's of course <laughs> like you know hey i pointed that out yes you did point that <laughs> out but i noticed it while you said it so i think we're all kind of onto something yeah no it was funny she totally blended in and that's how she figured out that crystal was piecing out because she was pissed about the whole italy excursion <laughs> so yeah it doubled as a as a spy as spyware where in the world is joan collins that's another episode of dynasty as they want to be in the books kyler thank you so much for joining me aloha oh you already said that at the beginning of the episode. Mahalo. <laughs> well, mahalo for making this delicious uh, Mai Tai. I still haven't finished it. We've been gabbing so much. Well, don't chew on those straws for too long. Oh, don't tell them we use straws on the podcast. No, we reuse these straws. We do reuse our these straws. These straws are from year 2004, I think. Mm, a nice vintage black plastic <laughs> straw. Don't you want to suck on these? Mm, yum, yum. Well, if you want to suck on our social media, you can at Nasty Podcast. That's N-A-S-T-Y Podcast. Follow along on Twitter and Instagram if you have any comments or suggestions things that you'd like to hear us talk about or your own thoughts about dynasty this is a you know this is a two-way street when we want it to be so let us know and we'll bring it up uh, in a future episode i'd love to know what people are thinking about steven and sammy joe because i just it puts such a bad taste in my mouth I think it's ultimately just a failure of aesthetics. It's not an exciting plot line. It's not. So who cares? Gay conversion or straight charade, whatever it is. It's kind of just not that interesting to me. Yeah, it's not. I'd rather watch Fallon in her christening outfit talk to her daddy than see Stephen and Sammy Joe kiss again. Daddy. Daddy.